Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your great love for us once more. And we thank you for the way that you show your love to us by speaking to us, by giving us your word, despite our sinfulness and our rebellion against you. Lord, we do pray that as we read your word this morning, we may not have hard hearts and deaf ears to it, but that we may be able to listen to what you say and it may change us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, those of you who know me fairly well know that I don't particularly like um, eating those things that are necessarily good for you. I like eating those things that are bad for you. Uh, Confectionery, cream, this kind of thing is what I'm really after. But I do eat fruit. Um, I do like fruit to some extent, and but I do recognise that not all fruit is the kind of fruit that I like. I like oranges and mandarins, so the citrus stuff. I'll even suck on a lemon. Um, I like uh, those kinds of fruit. But mangoes, oh, I pretty much cannot eat mango. And if you put mango juice into any form of juice, if it's sort of tropical and they add mango, I just go, oh, can't drink it. Whereas Jill, my wife, loves uh, mangoes. But if she's eating a mango, she knows she doesn't even offer me a bite because I really don't like it. I think we're all like that. We like some sorts of fruit, and other fruits we consider bad fruit. Good fruit, bad fruit, we reject the bad, we eat the good. Last week we looked at the beginning of this part of Isaiah chapter 5, where we looked at God and his vineyard, and how he expects his people to produce good fruit, fruit that he likes, and not bad fruit, because those who produce bad fruit are punished and destroyed for producing bad fruit, the fruit that God does not enjoy. And so we touched on that last week, what is bad fruit to some extent, but now Isaiah is telling us more clearly what he considers as bad fruit, what God considers is bad fruit, and that we should not be producing if we want God to be happy with us, if we want God to not destroy us. And so over the coming weeks, although I have two weeks annual leave in between, we're going to look at these different types of fruit that God considers bad. And this week we're going to look at just one of those uh, bad types of fruit, and that is from verses 8 through to verse 10. Verse 8, 9 and 10, we're going to look at one particular type of bad fruit that God does not like, and that is the bad fruit of greed. Greed is bad fruit number one. And so this morning, my first main point, if you want to follow along my main points, they're there on the back of the bulletin, is about the greedy Israelites, about this bad fruit that the Israelites were producing of greed. How do you know that the Israelites are greedy? How does God show that they're greedy and they're producing bad fruit? Well, it's by their behavior. What are they doing that's greedy? Well, we read in verse 8. If you've got a black church Bible, that's on page 679, 679, verse 8 of chapter 5, we see the Israelites being described as being greedy, where we read, Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. How are they being greedy? Because they're adding house to house. They have one house, and what do they do? They get another house. And what do they do then? They get another house. And they do the same with fields. They have a little block of land where they've got their vineyard on or whatever they're, they're growing there, looking after, sheep are there. 
And is that enough? No, they get another field. They join it. They want the next field over. And then what do they want? They want another bit of land. They just keep going after block of land after block of land, adding field to field, joining field to field, until what happens? Is it bad to have lots of houses? Is it bad to have lots of field, to have lots of land? Does God bless us with houses? Does God bless us with large blocks of land? Yes. But what is the problem here? with what the Israelites are doing. Well, we read at the end of verse 8 how this is a greedy action. Till no space is left. What is greed? Well, it's excessive accumulation of stuff, particularly at the detriment of others. That others need something and we take it. Even though we don't need it, we just want it. And that's what the Israelites were doing, till no space is left. There was no room left for other people to have the field, to have a house for themselves. There is no space left, kind of like the Sydney rental market and property market at the moment. There's not much room. You know, people, where can you get a house to buy? Where can you get a place to rent? Well, there's not any room left. And that is what is happening here in Israel. That is what God is condemning. The other way that we see it's wrong is by the last part of verse 8, and you live alone in the land. Acquiring houses, acquiring land isn't a sin in itself. It's when you're doing it beyond what you actually need until you live alone. You've got this big house. You've got lots of land, but you don't actually need it. You're there all alone without anyone to share all that you have, and so clearly you do not need what you have acquired. Greed is that excessive accumulation of possessions beyond what you actually need and require. Did the Israelites do this, or is Isaiah making it up? Yes, they did. The Israelites started to do this. They started to acquire house after house after house until poor Israelites had nowhere to live. And they started to acquire field after field after field until poor Israelites had no fields to earn a living from and feed themselves from. And the Israelites should have known better about this because God had told them, given them strict laws about what you're to do when it comes to property. Property was supposed to stay in the family. God had blessed the Israelites by putting them in the land of Canaan, giving them houses, giving them land, but it was supposed to stay in families. You weren't supposed to ever sell your land. You could lease it out to another family, but what happened then? You got it back 50 years later. That was the limit. Every 50 years, the year of Jubilee came round, and all land, all houses were returned to the family that they were given to when, that came, when they came into the land. But what was happening? These rich Israelites were taking over land that was not theirs and not giving it back at the year of Jubilee. They were depriving people of their ancestral right to land. And so these poor people were living on their own land, farming their own land, but all the profits were being fed back to the rich Israelites who were using these poorer Israelites to serve their own greed, their own lust for having more and more at the expense of others. That is greed. 
is where you accumulate things more and more at the expense of others. And what does God say to these greedy Israelites? Does he say, well done, the one with the most land wins, the one with the most fields wins at the end of the day? No. God says, woe to them. Did you see at the beginning of verse 8, that little word, woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land? God says woe. And that's my second main point. God brings woe to the greedy Israelites. What is woe? It's not a word that we commonly use in, um, in English uh, vocabulary, although um, I just have noticed yes, someone actually commenting about the way that we use woe in the congregation. Um, yeah, we say woe. Isn't that great? I guess that's from wonderful. But this is not a good woe. This is a bad woe. Woe. To people, and it means misery, affliction, suffering. Bring woe upon these people for their greed. And did God do that? What sort of woe did He bring upon them? Well, we see in verse 9 what sort of woe He brings. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, Surely the great houses will become desolate, and fine mansions left without occupants. God brings woe upon them, not by destroying the houses, but by taking them away from their houses. Their many houses, the great houses that they have and the fine mansions they have are left without occupants. The people are snatched out. And, of course, this did happen where people obviously die and so they leave things behind. Or I think this is probably a reference to the exile where the Babylonian army came in to the Israelites and took them away from their land, away from their houses, so that they were put in as strangers and aliens in another land and had to leave it all behind. That is the woe that God brought upon them. He took them away from their possessions that they had acquired through greed. And then the other way that he punishes them, he has two ways. One is he takes them away. The second way is by production going down. Verse 10. A 10-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine, a homer of seed, only an ephah of grain. Production goes down from the fields that they have gathered. Now, how do we know how bad that is? Well, I don't measure things by baths anymore. Uh, well, I never have. Uh, but we uh, do not. Uh, it obviously was at one point that you have a bath of something as a measurement. But uh, what is a bath? Well, the NIV gives us a nice little footnote there. See, you drop down to the column. See the, uh, the letter C in the margin with uh, the number 10. That is probably about six gallons, but we're not American. So in parentheses, it says about 22 litres. So about 22 litres. Now, how do you know I'm not a farmer, 10 acres, what comes from a 10-acre field? There's 22 litres. Is that a good crop or is it a bad crop? Well, 10 acres is expected to produce 38,000 litres of wine. And here you're getting 22. 38,000 is what you expect. 22 is what they're getting. That is pretty bad. That is famine conditions that the Israelites are experiencing. And the other thing, it's not just the wine that's going down. How else do we see it? It says a homer of seed, only an ephah of grain. 
Now, Homer, at least you know kind of what a bath is. Uh, a Homer, I'm sure many of you uh, do not know what a Homer or an Epha is at all. So we uh, can drop down to the margin again, and it says that is probably about six bushels. Um, and that is probably about three-fifths of a bushel, about 22 litres. Uh, the way of understanding this is probably that in a Homer, this is, we'll try and get the measurements, this is from a commentator, in a Homer you've got 10 ephahs. If you plant a Homer in a field, you would expect roughly 100 ephahs back, so 10 Homers back from the Homer that you put in. So that means you put 10 ephahs in the ground, you expect 100 ephahs back, and what are they getting back? What does it say? Only an ephah of grain. So they're putting 10 ephahs in, expecting 100, and they get one back. This is negative growth. They're putting 10 in the ground, getting one back, when they're expecting to get 100 back. This is terrible conditions. They have all these fields that they've acquired through greed, and what is happening with them? They're pretty much useless. It's actually, well, it's more than useless. It's actually affecting their bottom line altogether by going into the negatives. They are losing nine ephahs every time they try to get something out of the field. God is punishing them by giving them famine conditions as a result of their greed. So, is it the only the Israelites that we need to be concerned about greed? This did happen. Famines came through. They were taken away. Is greed only a bad fruit for Israelites? Well, my third main point this morning is that the greedy are still here, that they still do exist. It's not just the Israelites who are greedy. The greedy are still here. They still exist today. People accumulating possessions to excess and particularly possessions accumulated at the expense of others, that we acquire things for ourselves when others could be better served by having them at their expense. And this starts so young. I can't believe it. Even Joshua, my son, who is now just about two, he still wants things at the expense of others. We have another child who's now three months old. She has her little rocker, and that's all she pretty much sits in besides in her bed or on someone's lap. And over the rocker, we have three little ducks that squeak. And they hang there, and they're attached with Velcro. And Joshua has toys galore. He has toys all in his room. He has toys in the living room. He sometimes even takes Pippa's toys out of her room, which she doesn't even come close to. But she loves lying in that rocker looking at the ducks. And what does Joshua want? He wants the ducks. And he knows how to get them off. They're attached with Velcro. And so he takes the ducks. And we argue with him. We say, look at all your toys, Joshua. Leave the ducks for Pippa. She doesn't require much. She just likes those ducks. But he wants the ducks at the expense of someone else. The greed is there in him at age two. He's already begun to be greedy. He knows that she's sitting there, that she's watching them, and he wants them. Not because he needs them, but because he just wants them. The greed is there, and it's at the expense of others that that greed is satisfied. And people also today still acquire possessions far beyond their needs. People do it with money. 
have lots and lots and lots of money in the bank, more than they could spend on their needs for the rest of their life. All the food that they need to eat for the rest of their life, all the necessities of life, the clothing, the houses, could be easily paid for by their bank account. But instead of being satisfied, they continue to acquire more and more money. And people do it with homes as well, just like these Israelites, getting more and more homes, or at least bigger and bigger homes that are far beyond what they need. I've started looking at um, architectural books, and you see some of these mansions that people own, and it's for one man. He has a house that has something like 28 rooms. And it's like, how could you possibly think you need that? You have 28 rooms and you are there alone. It is greed that makes someone want to have a house of that size and that capacity. And people do it with land that they don't use. They have lots, blocks and blocks and blocks of land and they have no use for it whatsoever. They may not even visit it much in their lifetime. They just have it out there in the country. They own a huge block of land. And people even collect possessions that they don't use. And this is something that probably more and more of us struggle with. We don't so much struggle with having large blocks of land and having large numbers of houses, but we collect possessions that we don't need, that we don't use. People have well-stocked libraries of books and they just don't read. I read that in Jane Austen where they, you know, there's these men that say, oh, yes, I have this big mansion and I have a well-stocked library, but I don't read, but I do have a well-stocked library. And it's like, well, why do you have the library? What a waste of money. And often that money has come from poor people working on their land. People acquire possessions that they don't use. Or we don't maybe, books maybe aren't your vice, but often it comes to things like movies, I remember my barber when I used to live elsewhere and DVDs were just in. And he was buying DVDs. He loved to talk to me about his DVDs. And I would ask him about movies that he'd seen, that I'd seen and said was really good. And he would say, oh, yes, I own that. I haven't seen it. And I'd say, oh, what about this one? He says, yes, I've got that on DVD as well. Oh, I haven't seen it. He's actually buying movies he's not even seen once. And he owns them. Obviously, he needed to drop the price of my haircut so that he didn't have so much money to spend on all these DVDs he wasn't watching. But we do that. We acquire things that we don't actually use. I actually visited a patient um, when I was a podiatrist, and this was a very wealthy patient, and he collected Mercedes-Benz cars. He had garages and garages of these Mercedes-Benz cars. What is that about? It is greed. It is someone acquiring things simply for the sake of acquiring them. They don't need all these cars. They just like to have them. We are all greedy people. We all acquire things that we don't need. And how does God view this? Does God still view this as a bad fruit? Yes, God still brings woe to the greedy. He still considers greed a bad thing. He does what he did to these Israelites. He takes you away from your wealth. All the possessions that you acquired through greed, you will be taken away from. It may be in this lifetime that the things you have are taken away. It might be that you 
do something really dumb and are sued for all your assets, they come and they collect everything. It may be that you end up in a marriage and you get divorced and suddenly you're barred from your own home. Everything is split down the middle and all that you acquired before is taken away. And of course the other way that we will all be taken away from everything we possess is through death. One day you will die if Jesus doesn't return before that. You will die and everything you've acquired through greed will be left to someone else. And production also goes down. Remember that's how the two ways that God punished the Israelites was by taking them away and by reducing production. And that happens today as well. You can lose your job and suddenly all your money that you were expecting to have and you bought this really big mansion with, with all your greed, you can't pay that mortgage. And that house is taken away from you. Production goes down. The shares you've accumulated suddenly become worthless, just like that. Inflation may skyrocket so that the Australian dollar, which seems to be doing very well at the moment, suddenly becomes valueless. And a wheelbarrow of banknotes can't even buy you a loaf of bread. Production can go down very easily. And possessions that you have acquired through greed become useless. The classic example is with technology. That fancy computer that you acquired far beyond what you could ever do with it gradually through time becomes useless and can't even run antivirus software because times have changed. Your computer that you were so proud of in the past is suddenly useless. Or the other example is those people who acquired huge numbers of video cassettes, VHS video cassettes. They've got this well-stocked library of movies and you can't even buy a VCR pretty much at the moment. They're totally useless to you and yet you spend so much money acquiring them. And DVDs are next. I I've always say that it'll be funny in Joshua when he grows up that he'll say, so seriously, you used to get a disc off a cupboard, take it over to a machine, put it in, and press play. You physically had to get up out of your seat to put a movie on. He's going to be used to some sort of little, on his phone, or I'm guessing, that he can just play a movie from that directly through the television set or something like that. Maybe he'll even be able to think, I want to watch such and such, and it'll happen. I don't know whether that will happen, but yes. DVDs that you're acquiring so much and you don't actually watch, will you be able to have a DVD player in the future that will actually read those DVDs? Will the technology be there? And what about clothes that we accumulate so much of and we don't wear that much? Your waistline goes out a bit and suddenly they're useless. Or you accumulate all these clothes and the fashion changes. And what you wear, people look at it and go, no, that's out of date. And so that huge wardrobe that you've accumulated of stuff that you've hardly even worn, you can't actually wear in public anymore because it seemed to be unfashionable. And greed is why you've got that huge wardrobe of useless clothes. God punishes greed by production going down and things becoming useless. And ultimately, God punishes greed 
not in a way that's said here in the text, but it is true, with punishment for eternity in hell. Greed is a sin, and God takes all sin seriously, and he punishes the sin of greed with eternal punishment in hell. So how do you escape this woe? How do you escape the woe that God pronounces upon greed? Well, my fifth main point is you flee greed. Flee greed. It's not enough to stop being greedy, to make up for those times that you've been greedy in the past. How do you flee from the sin of greed? Well, there's the one and only stop that you make, and that is Jesus Christ. The sin of greed brings woe upon you. And if you do not go to Jesus Christ, confess your greed and trust that he at the cross was paying for your greed, the punishment for greed will come upon you and you will suffer eternity in hell along with probably suffering in this life for it as well. Repent of your greed and trust that at the cross Jesus body was being given for your greed. That is the only way to escape the woe that God pronounces upon greed. And then stop being greedy through Christ's strength. Go to Jesus for forgiveness, to escape the woe, but then stop being greedy. How do you do that? Well, a good place to start is pray against it. Pray about that insatiable desire that you have for more than you need. Pray that you won't be like that. And strive to be content with what you do have. Remember, homes, land, possessions are not bad things in themselves. They're good blessings from God. But you're supposed to enjoy them as a blessing from God and not go for excessive numbers of them. Consider when you buy something whether you actually need it or whether it's just the desire in your heart of greed wanting it. Will you actually use what you are so hot to buy in the shop at that particular moment? Will you use it? Do you actually need it is a good question to ask. And enjoy those things that you do have and stop hungering after things that you don't actually need. And then also pray for the strength to give away the excess that you do have. We all have excess particularly here in Australia. And that's why we go after things that we don't need. One way to counteract your greed very thoroughly is to give away the excess that you have. Who do you give it to? Well, give it away to those people who really need it to survive. There are people all around the world at the moment that really need your money if they are going to have tomorrow as a day that they will live. They need the money to eat, to survive. You want to counteract the greed in your heart? Give life to people by giving them money so that they can have the food that they need. And also, give the greatest gift of all, eternal life to people. Use your money for the advancement of God's kingdom. Give to this church give to other churches, give to missionary organisations who are taking the gospel to people. That is a very good place to put your money to, 
that excess money that you have so that the gift of eternal life is given to people. That gift that people need above everything else. People need food, people need clothing, people need shelter, but ultimately the one thing they need in this life is to understand who Jesus is so that they will have eternal life. That is a very, very good use of your money. If you have excess money, stop considering how you can get it and use it to accumulate things that your greed wants and give it to those people who need eternal life. Better speak with God now. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for how your word confronts the sins in our heart and particularly the sin of greed which we have all committed again and again. Our hearts so often desire what we do not need. Lord, we pray that we may fear to displease you by being greedy. Lord, we pray that we may flee to Christ for forgiveness for our greed that at the cross we may believe he was paying for our greedy desires. And Lord, we pray that you may help us to stop being greedy, to be content with what we have, and to give away the excess that we have. Help us to consider what we can spend on others rather than what we can spend simply on our own selves and what our hearts desire. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen.